we can, we can replace it. And so please take that with you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And let me tell you uh, kind of today what, what we're doing. And actually, this message, this series has been a number of years in production to get to this point. Um, today, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to go through a series that's really going to direct us over the next three to five years. And so what we're looking at today is going to direct us over the next three to five years. I think it's something that's going to be beneficial for us as a church, but also for each one of us as disciples, if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? Or uh, what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ? And I think today there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a disciple because often what we find is we run in this water, which is the culture of Christianity, rather than the proclamation of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed in the Gospels. And sometimes we hear this term, kingdom of God, and it's so disconnected from my life and from my getting up and my going to bed at night. And what does that mean to be a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus in the everyday stuff of life? That's what we're going to begin to look at uh, today. Now, let's start off with this. When you think of Jesus of Nazareth, what are the titles that come to mind when you think of who Jesus is? Now, for many of us, we just walk through Christmas, so we think of Jesus as the Son of God. We think of Jesus as the Messiah, and Messiah is a term that means the King of Israel and the King of the world. But if you were in the first century sitting in a synagogue on a Saturday morning, not Sunday, but on the Sabbath, you're sitting in the synagogue, you know, you just sang, you did all that stuff, the Torah has been read, and in walks Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming up front, maybe he's taking the scroll of Isaiah, he's laying it out before him, he's reading it before the people. What is the title that you would give him? See, the title that the first century Jews understood Jesus as is that of a rabbi. He was known as a teacher. You know, 90 times in the New Testament, I counted them, 90 times in the New Testament, there are different titles that are applied to Jesus. And of the 90 times that titles are applied to Jesus, 60 of those times, he is called a rabbi or a teacher. And see, rabbi simply in the Hebrew means teacher. And a rabbi was somebody that would travel from town to town. He didn't stay in one place. He went from synagogue to synagogue, and he brought his yoke with him. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Remember that? My burden is light. A yoke was a set of teachings. A yoke was a way of understanding the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And the rabbis would travel around. They'd bring their yoke, and then they would say, come and follow me. And some would follow him. And others weren't really at the place to follow him, but they would invite others to become, and we're going to learn this term today, their Talmudin. Now, in, in our understanding, Jesus called us to be disciples, but the Hebrew understanding, the Hebrew background for disciple is this word, Talmudin. And it really means disciple. But the idea of discipleship and being a disciple comes out of this first century idea of Jesus being a rabbi and inviting us to follow him. Now, just for a minute, let me give you a little historical background. Discipleship and being a disciple, it didn't originate with Jesus. It didn't originate with the Jews. It actually originated hundreds of years before with people like Plato. You know that name? Aristotle, Socrates. Plato was actually a disciple of Socrates. And, and then this idea of discipleship went out into the world. 
And eventually it came to the Mediterranean, it came to Israel, it came to the first century Jews. And this was their concept of education in their world. It was a way of understanding what it meant to follow Jesus. So today we're going to look at a number of stories of Jesus calling his first disciples. And we're going to start looking at the pattern. What does it mean to follow him? So let's jump in in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Now, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fisher, fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, let me stop for a minute. That's not a clever turn a phrase. It's not a dad joke, right? You know, you're going to become a fisher of men. No, a fisher of men was a teacher. In the first century, to be a fisher of men was to captivate the minds and the hearts of people. Jesus is saying, come follow me. You know I'm a great teacher. You guys know I teach like no one else. I teach like one who has authority. Follow me, and I'm going to make you into something. You will become a great teacher. Watch this, verse 18. And immediately, they left their nets, and what? And followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, now turn over chapter 2, verse 13, and we see this story continue. Chapter 2, verse 13, as Jesus called Simon and as he's called John and his brother, and Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and notice he was teaching them. Now, why was he teaching them? Because that's what rabbis do. Rabbis bring their yoke. They're teaching on the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus, like a rabbi, was teaching them. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now turn next chapter over, chapter 3, verse 13. And the story continues. Chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired. And they came to him, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And here's the reason he appointed them and called them, so that they might be with him. That is a key phrase. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12. And then he begins to list the name of the 12. So notice, in calling them to follow him, he was calling them to be with them. And then notice it said to preach and to cast out demons. Now, why did he say those two things? Because if you read the Gospel of Mark, that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons. And he's saying, I want you to be fishers of men. I want you to become a great teacher. I want you to be with me. And then I'm going to send you out to do exactly what I have done. And then turn with me to the last one in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, after having led them for a while, kind of draws the bar, says, this is what it looks like to follow me, and calling the crowd to him. Mark eight thirty four. With his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, in the gospel of Mark, there's this pattern. Follow me. Follow me and be with me. Become like me. Notice he said, I will make you. So the transformation God wants in our life, it's not something we do. It's something he does to us. And then I want to send you out to do what I have done. I want you to be my Talmudin. I want you to be my disciple. Now, again, that, that concept of discipleship, I think in our context, it often refers to gathering the right information. Maybe it's filling in the blanks. Maybe it's understanding what this Christian life is about. Often when we think of discipleship, we think about collecting the right information. To Jesus and his disciples, the information was the easy part. Jesus wasn't calling you to a new just simply set of teachings. He was calling you to a new lifestyle. That the life that Jesus promised is not possible without the lifestyle that Jesus offers. The life that Jesus promised, the abundant life, it only happens if we're following in the lifestyle that Jesus offers. And he's saying, come follow me, be my disciple, be my Talmudin, be with me, become like me, and then I want to send you out to do what I have done. Because see, this concept of discipleship, it was something that was within the culture of the Jewish world. So if I could just go for a minute, do a little history. Uh, in terms of education and schooling, you know, today we've got elementary school, then the horrid middle school. Sorry, guys, if you're in middle school. That was a, a tough time for me, I know. And then you get to high school, and you're kind of finding your way. Maybe you go on to college. Some of you are just, you know, you've rocked it. You've done masters. You've got PhDs. They're in here, guys. They're amazing. Uh, all those people. We've got different levels of education. Now, in the Jewish world, you really had one level, but it could possibly become three. Now, the first level of education, the elementary school, the grammar school level, was called Bet Safer. Bet means house, um, and safer meant book. So it was the house of the book. And this is where grammar school would happen. You'd learn how to read and write. You'd also, guys, before the age of 12, memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, which includes Leviticus. Come on now. I mean, these are like fifth graders, right? First five books of the Old Testament. And so you do your reading, your writing, your arithmetic. You do all that stuff. Memorize. You would sing, actually, the first five books of the Bible. And for most kids at the age of 12, that would end. The boys would go off with their dads. They would learn a trade. They'd be apprenticed as a carpenter. They'd be apprenticed in some field. And unfortunately, for the women, they had to go off and prepare to be married. That was just the culture. So at the age of 12, that was it. Now, for the best of the best, there was... There was another step in the educational process. There was this little room that was off to the side of the synagogue. And, and this level of school was called the, the Bet Talmudin. It was a place of learning. And they wouldn't just learn the first five books of the Old Testament. They would learn all the scriptures. And they would learn how to argue and to ask good questions. And so this is for boys, only for boys from the age of 12 to 14. Now, for some, that's the end of the road. And we're already down to the, the bottom of the bottom, the 1%. Now, for the very best, the valedictorians, the Rhodes Scholars, the Ivy League type, there was one more step called Bet Midrash. Now, Bet Midrash was the last step in education. And it only happened if you sat down with a rabbi and the rabbi would literally just grill you. 
Now, not grill you in the sense of, of what you've done in life, but what you know. He would ask you technical questions about the Old Testament. He would go over your memorization, ask you ideas about what this rabbi taught or what that rabbi taught. And if he thought you were up to it, and if you were good in that, at the age of 14, he would say, come and follow me, and I will make you my disciple. Now, realize, to get to that level, you had to be the best of the best. He was inviting you to become a rabbi, to become a teacher. Now, take that language and take that idea, and let's imagine we're in that place, right? We went through the first two levels of education. You're in there, Rhodes Scholar, Ivy League, Oxford, Harvard, all that kind of good stuff. You have been called. What were the goals of your life? The goal of your life, the first goal of your life as a Talmudine, as a disciple, was to be with your rabbi. Your life was driven by being with him. They had this proverbial phrase, I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. I want to know my rabbi so well that I am right behind him wherever he goes, which means you get up when he, when he gets up, you go to bed when he goes to bed. When he asks you to do something, you do it. You eat what he eats. You listen to the music he likes. You watch the movies that he likes. All of that stuff, that's what you do. And remember when Jesus said he appointed 12, why? So that they might be with him. So that they might walk on the road. They might watch him heal the sick and cast out demons. So that they might be covered by the dust of his feet. The first step of discipleship is simply just to be with him. Now, the second step, if you're in this Talmudine, you're in this, this place of education, was not just to be with him. Here's the next step. You wanted to become like him. You know, all of us have had those heroes that we don't just want to know. We want to look like, dress like, talk like, look like. That's the goal of a disciple. I want to be like him. And Jesus, I think it's in Luke chapter 6, he captured it this way in Luke chapter 6. He, he said this, verse 40, about a teacher, a disciple. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, notice the language, will be like his teacher. That's the heart of a disciple. Not to gain, and this is the challenge, I think, in our Western Christianity. We want to gain information. The disciples, you know, when they're listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, they didn't take notes. You realize that? There's no notepads, nothing to write down. Because their goal was not just to get the information. It was to have the heart of their teacher. It was to become like the teacher it wasn't enough to know the right things. Maturity wasn't based on your ability to quote scripture or even to argue doctrine. It was to become and to be molded into the likeness, into the love, into the passion, into the character of, of, your, of your teacher, of your rabbi. Because your goal was, was to be like him. And then finally, the last goal, the last goal was your rabbi would look at you one day and maybe, I don't know how long it took, maybe four years, like, like college, or they would look at you and he would say, okay, Jason, go and make disciples. And you'd say, really? I'm done? Do you think I have what it takes? You have been with me. You have been with me. You've become like me. You teach like I teach. You have your yoke. Now go out and make disciples. 
That language is the language of Jesus. The challenge is we have removed Jesus from his context and we're just filling in blanks. We're just gathering information. See, the disciples would not have a concept of someone who believes in Jesus but doesn't follow Jesus. Someone that believes in Jesus and has the information of Jesus but doesn't have the passion to become like Jesus so that we, together as the church, might go out and actually do what Jesus did. See, what does it look like to be a disciple? Church, it means for us to be with him. Now, we're going to talk about that in the years to come. That's what we're doing. We're going to talk about how do you be with somebody who's not here, right? Who's left you a book. How, how do you do that? And then what does it look like for us to become like Jesus? Because you read the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbors, pray for those who persecute you. If you hate someone, you, you know, examine your heart. It's not enough just to commit murder, but rather this hatred, lust, all that stuff, that high teaching that he gives us. That's something he actually wants us to do. He wants us to pray for those who persecute us. He wants us to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. He wants us to fast. He wants us to pray. He wants us to give. He wants us to do everything that he taught us to do. But we have to do that in community. I don't know if you noticed, none of the disciples did alone. There was no mega disciple. You know, me and my personal wallet-sized Jesus and my little quiet time in a closet. No, it was a public Walking with Christ in community with others, which means, ready for this? It was really messy. People got hurt. People were offended. But see, when the goal is Jesus, then there's grace and there's mercy and there's humility and there's healing in that place. When the goal is just information, it doesn't line up. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to transformation. The life he's living us to is one, to be with him, two, to become like him, and then finally, for us as a church, actually, could you imagine this? Actually to go out and do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Now, here's the challenge. When we think of what Jesus did, Jesus, first of all, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and, and next month we're actually going to look at this. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, and we can't do that. We can't usher in because it's already here. What we are supposed to do as the church is to reflect that God's kingdom has come. Now, how do you know that God's kingdom has come because the lame see, the blind, right? They receive their sight. Freedom is proclaimed to the prisoners. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We proclaim the gospel. We do justice where justice needs to go. We show mercy where mercy needs to be. We are peacemakers in the world. We do not curse, but we bless. We fight injustice, whether it's in religion or in politics. We go out into the world to be a reflection of heaven on earth. Our mission in Evergreen is in Evergreen as it is in heaven. To actually practice the way and the pattern of Jesus. That's the life that, that he's called us to. So if we, if we remove this from the first century and we came down and we live this out in our communities in Evergreen, what would, that, what would that look like? Well, first of all, it would look like us being with, being with Jesus. That our first and primary goal of discipleship to Jesus is to live in constant, and here's the words, constant state of awareness and connection to God through the Holy Spirit. Now, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Constant? Really, Pastor? Come on now. I'm having a hard time with my five minutes in the morning. Constant state of awareness of God through the Holy Spirit 
throughout the day. Now, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, again, Jesus is not with us, but he said, I'll send you another counselor. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and the goal of the Spirit is to make Jesus real to the heart, to the mind. Jesus came to adopt us as the children of God. The Holy Spirit causes us to walk as the children of God. And so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 15, here's what abiding and being with Jesus looks like. Here's, here it is. John chapter 15, he uses this metaphor of the vine and the branches. I am the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The language Jesus uses of being with him is abiding and remaining with him. Paul said it this way, um, pray always, pray without ceasing. Be conscious of God. In the past, the old theologians said it's practicing the presence of God. Of God, what we're talking about is spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation, things like solitude and silence, things like prayer. How many of us have ever tried to fast? Not for health reasons, right? I, I know some of you are like, yeah, we do that. Okay, but fasting in a way where the presence of God becomes more real. How many of us understand what Sabbath was and what that means to introduce that into your life? We live in a world of hurry. We have to practice, ready for this, the ruthless elimination of hurry. We are to be a city inside a city that lives by different values. And we're driven by the same thing that's in the city. We're driven by technology. The first thing we do, we get up in the morning, we pick up our phone. We check our emails. What does a disciple do? A disciple acknowledges God. There are rhythms in our life that we have to begin to put in place, and then we have to take away the idols of the culture because the idols of the culture won't lead us to seek God's presence. We have to start identifying and removing them. He wants us to be with him. Here's, if you want a book on this, you want to read a, a book this year, uh, The Great Omission by Dallas Willard. This is a fantastic book that kind of helps us to see what this looks like. And in that book, The Great Omission, he describes being with God this way. He said it this way, the first and most basic thing we must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing, here's the language, the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds to him constantly. Now, you gotta figure out what that looks like where you live. Being a student, working, being retired, whatever it looks like, what does it mean for you to practice the presence of God and to be aware of him? That's why you and I, we need to learn to practice this together. But here's how he finishes this quote. We must take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. And then see, if you do this soon, our minds will return to God as a needle of a compass constantly returns to the north, meaning you're going to simply respond. You're going to want to be with him. And if God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. It takes, he's saying, it takes practice. It takes practice. It's not something that just comes naturally. The first thing we have to learn to do is to be with him. 
And in the coming months, in 2020, it's hard, to, I got to remind myself where we are. We're 2020, right? Um, we're going to do that this year. And when I talk about doing that, we're going to get really practical. Because one of the things that I, I've realized is that, you know, as, as leaders, sometimes we make a lot of assumptions about what's going on at home, right? Yeah, they're doing this, they're doing this. We're not going to make those assumptions anymore. And so in, sometimes in the service and then certainly in our small, group, small groups, we're going to be practicing things like meditation. You know, the way that I learned to pray wasn't by getting by myself and praying. It was praying with others, being taught how to pray, taught how to meditate, taught how to fast, taught how to read the Bible. The only way we're going to learn to be with Jesus is we have to be with Jesus together, which is messy, and to learn from each other. We want to be with him but second, we also want to, we want to become like him. We want to become like him. Now, here's the truth. In your life right now, all of us are discipled by someone or something. It's not as if Christians are disciples and then everybody else is just something else. We're all discipled by some teaching, some yoke. Why are you anxious? Because that yoke is not easy. That burden is not light. A yoke, remember the rabbi, was a teaching. My yoke is easy. My, my commands are not burdensome. Well, you are putting yourself under someone, the influence of something, and it's leading to what? Do you sleep well? Do you have anxiety and fears? Some of us, and, and I can confess this, struggle with depression. Sometimes we have, there's been days where maybe you couldn't move. Some of us struggle. Maybe it's not those things. It's pride. It's arrogance. You know, we just convince ourselves. We walk in there with such confidence that we're really not loving people. We're just walking over people. Why do we do that? Because you have been discipled. You're being discipled by what you listen to, by the yoke, by the teaching, by what you're becoming. Like all of us are discipled. Jesus is inviting us to be discipled by him. And here's the thing. He invites all of us. The amazing thing about the New Testament is shepherds came. No, no rabbi would invite a shepherd to be his Talmudin. Shepherds were losers, guys. The worst of the worst. Who are the first to show up? Shepherds. Who are the first to show up? Mary. Who's Mary? She's poor, guys. Come on now. This isn't who you want on your team. If you're picking teams for dodgeball, Mary's the last. Shepherds, they're the bottom. I mean, shepherds are below Mary. And then Joseph... You don't pick Joseph. You don't pick the poor in spirit. You don't pick the meek. You don't pick those who mourn. You don't. This is not where the kingdom of God shows up, but the kingdom of God shows up. And then these people start being with God, and they start doing the things of God, and the world begins to take notice. This is not where, it's not where it begins. So we want to become like him. And then finally, we want to begin to do what what Jesus did. I, I wonder for a moment, and maybe you can just, we're going to do a little participatory theater real quick. H have any of you been apprenticed in anything? Anyone? Okay, we got one, we got two, we got, we got not very many. Oh, we got some. Okay, we got some. All right, so we got some. We're not doing well right now, right? So this ain't going to work. If you're going to be apprenticed in something, you're not apprenticed to gain knowledge. It's not like a carpenter has little verses he puts on his window, right? And he wants to remember about certain tools. He doesn't put pictures of tools around his house. He doesn't simply read the right books. You know, to have and collect information for a carpenter is really weird unless you actually go and build something. 
The language of discipleship is the language of apprenticeship. When you're apprenticed by somebody, the goal is not simply to gather. The goal is to do. The goal is to become. To become like that person, whether it's an electrician, whether it's like a carpenter or plumber, to become like them in such a way that you can actually go out and be as competent and do what they, what they did. Because the invitation of Jesus is not to become Christians. Let me say that again. The invitation is not to become Christians. Do you know the word Christian appears three times in the New Testament? And it's often a derogatory term. It's not a term we gave ourselves. It's the term the world gave us. But 268 times we are called to be disciples. We're called to be apprentices. We're called to go out and actually do what he did. And he said it again in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. You know, in following Jesus, there were two types. On the one hand, there were disciples. But see, there were also the crowds. The crowds were fans. The crowds were hoping to get something from Jesus. What kept them coming back were the miracles. But what Jesus was constantly doing when he's speaking to the crowd is moving the crowd from simply gathering information to becoming disciples. If we had to evaluate the way we pursue God in this world today, are we gathering information? Are we simply fans of Jesus? Are we learning to submit our life to his life, to be with him, to become like him? How are we going to do that? It's going to take practice. Here's what I want to end on. I want to show you this. You know, uh, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what's interesting. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when you start reading it, in chapter 5, if you don't know, it's chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And in the Sermon on the Mount, is before he starts teaching, he says, you know, none of the Old Testament is going to pass away, but the one who is blessed is the one who does these things, who puts them into practice. This is Matthew, I think, 5.19. So in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the one who is blessed is the one who practices these things. And then he starts teaching, right? He starts teaching this stuff. And then at the end, you may have heard of this story, the story of the guy that builds his house on the sand or the rock. And he says, the guy that builds his house in the sand is the one that hears my words but doesn't put them into practice. He's a fan. He likes Jesus. He's interested by him, but he doesn't want to do what Jesus did. But he says, the one, the one who is wise is the one who takes my words, puts them into practices, and teaches others to do the same. The life of the Christian life is a life of practice. It takes time. It, it, it takes time. Here's, here's, my, here's my acknowledgement of how it takes time. Anybody here know about the triple bypass? Okay, more than the apprentice. Okay, right? You guys know about that. Good. That, that was good because I was going to be worried. How many of you, and, and let's, come on, be honest. Like, we want to celebrate you folks. How many of you have completed the triple bypass? Get your, get your hand up there. Come on, Rob and Pam. Come on, Bethany. We got anybody else? Anybody over here? Oh, all right. We got some. Okay, the triple bypass, if you don't know about this, starts right over here in Evergreen, right? Crazy, these people. Uh, they, they ride 120 miles, and it's not flat. It's not flat. <laughs> I mean, 120 miles, and they leave from here in Evergreen, and they go all the way up to Avon. I think I've been there once, like in my car. <laughs> and they do this in one day, right? You guys did it in one day. That's amazing. Okay, so, so 
imagine this. Imagine that Pam comes up to me and, and, and she says, come and follow. It's the day of the triple bypass. Come and follow me, Jason, and we're going to ride to Avon. Now, understand, I've, I've ridden a bike in the t- two and a half years I've been here once to my son's school over at uh, Bergen um, Valley. And I'm the dude that was walking up that hill right there. That, that was me. That was my manliness. I, and and I, accordingly, I've heard that my bike is terrible. It's a beast. And a beast doesn't mean a good thing. It, it weighs like a beast. It's heavy. It's, it's not the kind of bike you should be riding up here in the mountains because it's heavy. It's, it's cumbersome. And so if Pam says, hey, Jason, come follow me, I'm going to make you, essentially, she's going to make me die. Because see, before... <laughs> I wouldn't get up to Squaw Pass. I mean, I wouldn't get up the first hill, the first corner there. I'd be walking my bike back. Why? Because no one in this room was born ready to do the triple bypass. They went into training. And what Pam should do is say, hey, listen, here, I got an extra bike for you. Put this bike, that's a nice bike, but why why don't you try this bike and and let's go do five miles, okay? Let's Let's do something simple. Let's do something easy. And then the next week, maybe we go to seven miles and maybe 10 miles and 15 miles. And, and then maybe, maybe someday, maybe a year later, we try to go up Mount Evans, right? Those guys are crazy. They go all the way up Mount Evans because that's what it takes. And when Jesus says to practice, understand he's not saying try harder, Christians. That's not the message of the gospel. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is perfected in weakness. The goal of Christianity is not to try harder. It's to train. And in training, you fail. I, I don't know any baseball player who doesn't, doesn't fail more than he succeeds when they bat, right? Even the best, the on-base percentage, maybe 500, maybe, maybe the best of the best, half the time they fail. It's not about trying. It's about training. All right, so they got the last of the Skywalker series coming out, right? I think it's out. I haven't seen it. Uh, I don't know if I want to, but anyway. Luke Skywalker Yoda, right? I'm not going to try to do the voice, but Yoda, call, you know, he knows he's supposed to be a Jedi. Did Yoda say, hey, listen to these five lectures, memorize these, fill in the blanks a couple, couple of times, and then if you read these books and if you go to these lectures, you're going to be a Jedi, Luke, and you're going to rock it. Now, what he did was he trained. He was with him. In a sense, I mean, he came, became like Yoda, right? And, and then finally, he went out and did what Yoda did. Think of Rocky Balboa. He wants to beat Apollo Creed. What does Mick say to him? Hey, watch these five videos of these boxers. Memorize every moment. Be able to recite everything that happened in that. And then when you face Apollo Creed, you're going to knock him out. It wasn't about the information. It wasn't about understanding. It was about doing. He was with him. In a sense, he became like him. And then what did he do? He went out and did what Mick did, I guess. Or he became a boxer. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us to be with him. And in being with him, we become like him. And becoming like him, here's the beautiful thing. You're going to start loving your enemies more. Now, today, it's going up Mount Evans, right? It's like, there's no way. Dude, don't ask me to love the people who have hurt me. I can't do that. Yeah, but you could sit next to someone who's done that, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to see Jesus in them. You know why? Because they've been with him. And maybe you're somebody that lost someone in your life, someone that matters to you, or maybe you've lost your mourning. You've lost a job. 
You've lost a hope. You've lost a future. And you're going to say, Jesus, don't, don't ask me not to be anxious right now. I am anxious. This is all I know. And someone in this room has walked that path. They've been up Mount Evans. They've been to Avon. They know what it's like. And they're going to sit next to you. And they're going to be with you in the same way that Jesus wants to be with you. And you're going to sense Jesus' presence. You're going to look at him. You're going to see an aspect of Jesus. And then you're going to go out and do what Jesus did because they were with him. They became like him. And in this room, we don't have a perfect Jesus, but together we are a perfect Jesus. Do you understand what I mean? In this room, I am not even close to that, but there are maybe a couple little small aspects where I'm kind of there with Jesus. And, and for you, some of you, you have the mercy gift. You have the justice gift. You have the proclamation. There are people in this room that can pray like, like nobody's, they just pray like Rocky Balboa. And if you don't know how to pray, you need to get with them. Because to become like Jesus, we got to do it together. So here's, here's the vision. Over the next three years, we're going to still walk through books of the Bible. I love doing that. But at the end of a chapter, we may stop and we may spend three weeks on prayer. And in spending three weeks on prayer, we're going to take some things and we're going to send them out to, if you're not in a small group or small community, we're going to send that out to them. And those small groups are going to practice prayer together. Right? And we're going to talk about fasting. And then we may talk about one of the concepts of Jesus. Jesus talked about dealing with your past. Some of you cannot walk with Jesus because you, you, you've got hang-ups about your past. Hang-ups about sin from past generations. And you need to let those, some of you need to learn how to forgive. And so we're going to stop and maybe take three or four weeks and we're going to talk about forgiveness. And then we're actually going to go into a small group and, and imagine this and actually do what Jesus said and we're going to learn to forgive. And then maybe, maybe we're also going to talk about healing. You know, one of the things at Bergen Park Church, we don't, we don't pray for a lot of people to be healed, certainly not up front. But you know, Jesus said, I want you to do what, and it doesn't mean that everybody I've prayed for has been healed, but if I don't pray for anybody, no one's going to get healed. But what does that look like for us? And then listen, it's not going to look like the same, silence and solitude is not going to look the same when you've got five kids as when you're retired, <laughs> But, but we need to practice that in such a way that we're not putting pressure on each other, but we're learning from each other and understanding that to be with Jesus at different moments in life, we can learn from each other, we can become like him so that we can go out and do what Jesus did. You see that vision? And so here, here's the one ask that I ask you is, is walk with us in this. And, and maybe this week, would you simply take five minutes? It's called a daily office. Five minutes in the morning, 12 o'clock, five minutes, five minutes a night. You don't have to read anything. You just need to be quiet and say, Father, thank you that you're with me. It'd be good to read some scripture there, but if you've never done this, would you simply be five minutes, guys, we got five minutes to simply rest and know that he is God. And in doing that, just five minutes, morning, afternoon, and night, morning, afternoon, and night, what you're doing is you're starting to lift weights. You're starting to get on the bike you're going to start practicing, and as your endurance builds up, you're going to start building that being with him and then becoming like him and then doing what he does. This is the life God's called us to. And I think as we follow him in it, he's going to do more than we could ever ask or imagine on our own. I hope you're with us. You guys with us? I hope so. I'm looking forward to it, guys. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, um, God, I thank you you called me. Father, I think you called us. We were not um, the Rhodes Scholars in terms of spiritual life. We were, 
We're the shepherds. Um, We're those that know we are in need of grace. That when you announced the kingdom, you said blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed who are the rich in spirit. You said blessed are those who, who mourn because they can see the kingdom coming. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that want a better life. Father, you called us and and you brought us to yourself just to be with you and to rest with you, to know you as our Father, to know we're accepted simply through faith and faith alone, but you didn't leave us there. You kept poking us with the Spirit and with the life of others where we see their faith at work and you're calling us now to forgive, to walk in the Spirit and Lord, eventually to do, really to do what what you did. And so Father, guide us in this for the betterment of your kingdom that, in, that we might live in evergreen as it is in heaven, not because we try harder, but because we're training more. And Father, give us the grace to express to each person in this room that you don't have to have it together. In fact, if you start at that place where you have it together, you, you're not gonna be able to rest and be with them. So Father, I pray this morning as we, as we conclude and maybe some will be led to to experience communion or to be prayed for this morning. Father, thank you that you've called us and thank you you're the one that promises to complete that work which you've started. In Jesus' name.